discover that preeminently in the midst of his sufferings. We are looking at a passage, this is the second week of two in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're looking at verses uh, 21 to 25. Let me read the text for us, and if you're joining us, uh, visitor to Wallace, we're so, so grateful that you're tuning in. We welcome you, may you be richly blessed by meeting Jesus in his word. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's start with two simple questions. Who wants to know God, be filled with his love, his power, and enjoy him now and forever? Hopefully, everybody. Second question. Who really and truly wants to suffer? Nobody. Oh my. Both of these things are at the heart of belonging to Jesus Christ by faith. Look at verse 21. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There it is. Christ suffered for you in your place. Christ suffered that you would never face the condemnation of a holy God. Christ suffered to free you from death, from sin, from evil. Christ suffered to cleanse your heart of all sin and to fill it with his love and power. Christ suffered to purchase for you what you could never afford, eternity. And yet, Jesus' suffering leaves you an example. The Greek word had to do with tracing letters for kids. As you think about your life as a Christian, he lays down a template of suffering. This is how you trace your purpose and your course that you might follow in a step. So how do you keep those two things together? The promise of glory, God filling you with his life and his love, and the promise of unjust suffering for belonging to Jesus. Peter wants you to know. But how does Peter know? Why do we take his word for it? He knew Jesus. And he was an eyewitness to these sufferings. 
He saw that Jesus revealed the glory of God. Jesus was filled filled with the love and the power of God. And yet Jesus suffered unjustly. So Peter wants you to know this Jesus. And in order to do that, he's going to make Jesus' sufferings vivid for you. Somehow the only way to enjoy the presence, the power, the love of God and to endure unjust suffering is to be very clear about Jesus' unjust suffering. So here's the question we'll answer together. What does Peter make vivid about Jesus' sufferings? I'll show you three things, then we'll have an application at the end. First, that Jesus suffered. So I don't want you to take that for granted. That God even cares about our suffering is stunning. He is not obligated to address human suffering. We tend to wonder, why is there any suffering in the world? But if you begin with the Bible, you would wonder why there isn't more suffering in the world. Why does work, life work as well as it does in as many places as it does? God knows we don't enjoy suffering. We weren't made for it. You were fashioned for a world without evil, without sin, and without suffering. God didn't create a fallen world. We live in a world with these things. It's our fault. We sinned. And God is superintending in this world, keeping this world from being as bad as it could be were human beings left to themselves. It's stunning that God cares. And what's even more stunning, beloved, is that Jesus stepped into this world to suffer with us. So in order to answer the question, The answer to the question, how do you know God cares about human suffering? What's the answer? Jesus. Did you see it in Isaiah 53, verse 3? He was despised and rejected of men. This, incidentally, is the most beautiful person in the universe. The person being described here, if you were to see him, you would never for a second want to leave his presence. This is the most awe-inspiring person in the universe. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The suffering of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. The Lord Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to the grind of living in our brokenness. So I want you to understand that life in this fallen world is full of suffering. Just living in a world that doesn't work right. Sunburn. Mosquito bites. Falling and tripping and skimming your knee, aging, stress, disease, all of these, just living in a fallen world is a form of suffering. Not to mention suffering due to ignorance, inexperience. You shouldn't have a big brother beat up on you, That's just, and it happens. Husbands shouldn't be mean to their wives, it happens. Suffering through pangs of conscience, you've sinned, it troubles you. You've hurt someone else. It troubles you. Suffering because of those you love. You watch your children suffer. You lose a loved one. That's suffering because we live in a fallen world. Suffering through being misunderstood. Friends not being reconciled. That's suffering. Suffering because we're at warfare with sin, with the devil, with the world. 
And Peter's focus in this text is suffering unjustly simply because you identify with Jesus Christ. Paying the price for naming the name of Christ. We really talked about that last week, and I neglected to say something very important last week about unjust suffering, and one of our members called this to my attention this week, and I want to make this point. You are not called to suffer unjustly abuse in your home. Not spousal abuse, not child abuse. You are not called to suffer that unjustly. You should do something about that immediately. Seek help, seek professionals. You are not called to suffer abuse domestically. So Peter is making vivid for us the sufferings of Jesus. The first point, that Jesus suffered. Secondly, a little bit more detailed in the text, how Jesus suffered. So what Peter writes for you next is he's doing two things. He's drawing on his eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus, and he's putting over that the lens of what he knows. As he, was, uh, he was taught Isaiah 53 as a young adult. No doubt he had heard Jesus talk about Isaiah 53. And so he's giving for you an understanding, a vividness of the sufferings of Jesus drawn from his own eyewitness experience through the lens of Isaiah 53. That's why we had it read for you earlier in the service. So listen again to verse 21 from 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry, verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Look at the specific vividness of the way Jesus suffered. One without sin. Isaiah 53, 9. Although he had done no violence. Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus' sufferings are particularly unjust because he deserved none of them. He never sinned. Not for a moment did Jesus not love his father perfectly. Not for a moment did Jesus not love his neighbor as himself perfectly. Not for a moment were Jesus' motives tainted by evil. Not for a moment did Jesus compromise God's glory. Not for a moment. He himself said this, John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. You can't say that. I can't say that. No person that ever lived on the earth could ever come close to saying that. I always do what pleases my Father. This, on the strength of that, Paul writes of this Jesus being our righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through Christ. So he is without sin in his suffering. He's without deceit. Isaiah 53, 9, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. One commentator says the word there, understand it, is malice. He's not saying to those people arresting him, you terrible sinners. Or if it's deceit, then when we suffer, we're sorely tempted to do what? Fudge the truth, fudge the facts, make ourselves look better than we really are. That's my heart's tendency. Thirdly, he suffered without returning, reviling, or threats. And this is based on Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. The sheep has no idea that its death is next. It isn't going, wait a minute, what's happening to me? Whoa. Jesus knew what was happening next. Nothing out of his mouth, as it were. And what's stunning, beloved, is Jesus had every legal basis to shut down this trial. It's another discussion for another day, but there are many unjust legal aspects to the arrest and the trial of Jesus. You and I, we instinctively want to set the record straight when we're falsely accused, and even when we're rightly accused. Not Jesus. We easily engage in verbal combat. We want the last word to retaliate, to vindicate ourselves. Not Jesus. We want to turn our tongues into swords and slash our persecutors to pieces. Not Jesus. We want to return evil for evil. You hit me, I hit you back. Not Jesus. We want to defend ourselves to the death. Not Jesus. We want to deflect unfair criticism. Not Jesus. When you're reading these texts for the first, second, maybe the umpteenth time, and you encounter Jesus refusing to defend himself, knowing he's not guilty of any of this, you're wondering what? Speak up. I mean, I think he reminded Pilate, if I wanted to, 72 angels at the snap of my fingers. If I wanted to. Why isn't Jesus defending himself? Here's why. Because standing in your place, representing you, you and I are speechless in the face of God calling us to account for our sins. We have no defense. We have nothing to say. We are silent when God calls us to give an account for the way we live. Jesus representing you is silent because we all are silenced by the demands of the law of God. And Peter goes on to say, with trust in his Father, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There's the pattern, refraining with the tongue, trusting the Father. I can trust you, Father. You are good. You're in control. You take care of this. You will ultimately deliver me. Jesus knew that obeying his Father through his death, his Father would raise him from the grave. It's there in Isaiah 53. He will prolong his days. He hoped in the resurrection. So do our beloved brothers and sisters all across this globe who are being persecuted to the death for their faith. Their ultimate hope is not in this life. It is in the resurrection, entrusting themselves to the Father. So Peter is making vivid for us the sufferings of Jesus. Third thing he shows, why Jesus suffered. Not just how, why. And he continues to borrow from the servant song of Isaiah, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. And this is really holy ground, isn't it? You come into this text, this is all the Bible is, but particularly with such a magnifying glass on the sufferings of Jesus, this is holy ground. So I want to show you that Peter distinguishes three reasons Three reasons Jesus suffered. Three whys, as it were. First, there's the why of necessity. Jesus suffered to save you from the penalty of your sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Look how 
founded this is in the Isaiah text, 53.6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of your iniquity, all of the sins and iniquity of the people that Jesus is saving, they're all laid on Jesus. Because you don't want to die with that sin on you. If you die with that sin on you, you take it into an eternity apart from God in everlasting agony. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 53.11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Again and again, Isaiah says it, 53.12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And isn't, beloved, just that Jesus suffered to the point of death, but he died as one accursed. Accursed. Perfect law-keeping brings the blessing of God. Any law-breaking incurs the curse of God, death. Christ came to bear that curse. This is anticipated in Deuteronomy 21-22. Moses writes, if any man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving for you for an inheritance. Paul picks up on this and shows that Christ's tree, the cross, is the place where the curse was removed from us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Therefore it is not insignificant, beloved, that they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. He died with that crown on. He removed the thorny curse promised at Galatians 3.18. Thorns and thistles you shall have from the ground. Christ is removing the curse. Emblematic of those thorns right there in Genesis by bearing that crown of thorns on his head. The most vivid picture of this removal of sin comes through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where the priests would take their hands, lay them on the head of an unblemished lamb, symbolic of a transfer of the sins of the people to that lamb, and that lamb was slaughtered or banished outside the gate, the scapegoat, removing the sins from the people. And this is the very language um, that, that uh, Peter uses, Isaiah 53 like a lamb that is led to slaughter, a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. He's seeing this Jesus who himself said, I'm the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53.10, put him to grief to make his soul an offering for guilt. So in the spotless, sinless body of Jesus is nailed the guilt of our sin. So you have also the why of purpose. He saves us from the power of sin. That we, so Peter's words are that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's one thing to know God has removed all your sins, put them in the spotless body of Jesus. It's another to be free from the tyranny and the power of sin. We've been looking at this in Romans 6 in our study. See, think about the two great salvation events of the Old Testament, the Exodus, 
Israel is freed from bondage into having a saving relationship with God. Israel returns from the exodus to have, so they're freed. Israel is freed physically as a nation. That's a picture of us being, belonging to Jesus, freed from the tyranny, the power of sin. It's still with us, but we no longer are slaves to sin. And a why of result. He saves us from the poison of sin. By his wounds you have been healed. That's an illusion of being saved. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds you were healed. The death of Jesus begins the ultimate healing of the cosmos. Everything's going to be set right. The physical healings you see leading up to his death are pictures of the ultimate healing Jesus has purchased by virtue of his death and resurrection and session. He will come again to bring you into a land that is completely healed. There'll be no strife in nature. There'll be no sin, no death, no sorrow, no sickness, no sadness. This is the fulfillment of that. This is the path through which we get that. The suffering of Jesus. What's our response? Peter gives it to us in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Again, drawing from Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Peter is reminding us that our relationship with God is fundamentally through the graces of faith and repentance. I think this is a beautiful picture of faith and repentance. What then from these verses are marks of repentance? He says you've turned from straying. Repentance is turning. It's a new life direction. You've come to the true shepherd of your soul. So think of sin as finding pasture apart from God. Finding life, finding happiness, finding purpose, finding fulfillment on your terms, not God's. It's making anything more important in your life to you than God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. That's why the passage we're all looking at in Colossians, Paul Cornwall has us reading Colossians, specifically Colossians 3. Paul puts it this way, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Meaning when you pursue any of those things or anything else, you're saying something is more important to you, something is more fulfilling to you, something is better for you than God himself. That's what it means to be straying. You're finding pasture on your terms, not God's. You're not listening to the voice of the shepherd. You're listening to your own voice. You crave self-rule. Repentance says, Lord, change that. I can't do anything about that. I'm helpless. Lord, send your spirit. Return me to you. Help me. Raise me from the dead. Free my will. Lord, change that. You are far better, Jesus, ruling my soul than I am. You're a much better shepherd than I am. That's repentance. <laughs> and faith is looking to Jesus as the one, the only one who can do that and the only one who can cleanse you from your self-rule. 
So your self-rule, you've wandered into places of self-indulgence, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-defense, and it's destroying you and others and God's name. What is faith? It's seeing Jesus as the true shepherd of your soul. How do you know you've done that? You hear his voice. I made you. I provide for you. I protect you. I love you. I laid down my life for you. You hear the voice of the shepherd. You want to be near the shepherd. That's faith. And you're in awe of this death he sacrificed in your place. This unjust suffering. And that cross then gives shape to everything. You're never not living, thinking, speaking, deciding, reacting, planning, purposing, outside of the light of the cross. It shapes everything. So you see yourself in a new light. There's a new humility. You're not as cracked up as you think you were. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be a disaster if God hadn't re- rescued you. <laughs> And you long for the correcting rod of the shepherd. And faith says Jesus is better than sin. Faith says he will lead me in green pastures. And now you have a new attitude towards suffering. Instead of, why me? Why not me? And you believe that one ounce of sin is far worse for you than ten tons of suffering. That's what light from the cross shows you. And it gives you a whole new radical perspective on other people, particularly people you don't like, particularly people that aren't pleasing to you, particularly people with whom you're at odds. There's a new sympathy. Gosh, I would be a wayward sheep if Jesus hadn't found me. I'm not going to be judged for my sins. I'm going to resist sinning and judgment on them. <laughs> I'm going to clothe myself with the beauty of the shepherd. It's the Colossians 3 passage we're all memorizing. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So this is gospel liberty. This is gospel beauty. This is gospel humility. This is gospel relationships. This is gospel. This is stunning. This is what the unjust sufferings of Jesus have freed us to relish to move in, to enjoy, to be empowered by. Let me pray for us. Like straying sheep, left to our own devices, lost, unable to help ourselves, you have found us, Lord Jesus. You have become the good caretaker, overseer of our souls. Show us your shepherdly care again. Show us this love that rescues wayward sheep by dying. Who would think? Doesn't the shepherd need to be strong? Run and fight? No, this shepherd saves wayward sheep by laying down his life, by unjust suffering, without deceit, reviling, or malice in his mouth like the lamb led to the slaughter. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that this slaughter has brought about a harvest of righteousness, 
a harvest of faith, a harvest of souls, a harvest of reconciliation. So have mercy on us, our families, our spouses, our children, our friends, our church, that we would know this true shepherd of our souls and follow him with all joy and delight and confidence. For his glory's sake we pray. Amen.